544, Chapter 50 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Book talk begins at 2730. Welcome to Craplet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 544, The Falls Road. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am late. I am late because yesterday when I woke up early, I had to start working. And I had gone to bed late the night before. And I had missed the Zoom call. And... You know, numbers in the states of the COVIDness, they are a spike and as a consequence, so's my workload. It's great in that horrifying way where one who likes to keep busy says to oneself, gosh, I certainly have plenty to do. That keeps me active and my mind off of things. But it's not great in the way that lots of people are passing away. And... And as we get more and more people on the phones, of course, we start hearing more and more stories. I cannot stress this enough. Please, please do whatever you can to keep you and your family and your loved ones and your friends and your community and your neighborhood and your city and your state and your province and your country, from getting this disease. It is not fatal to everyone at all, but it is wildly unpredictable in how it is going to behave inside individual people. The media has done a lot of really good work publicizing some of the risk factors, and at least in the States, the, the one risk factor that they haven't spent much time talking about appears to be obesity. The United States, for lots and lots of complicated reasons, has issues with weight gain in general. And this disease, because of the way it attacks the circulatory system, and therefore anything that makes it more difficult for your heart to pump blood, that appears to be a risk factor that's not getting talked about nearly enough. But it's, it's hardly the only risk factor. And more often, so many times, too many times, the stories we're hearing back from our contact tracers and our case investigators are that people who appear to have absolutely no risk factors are being absolutely devastated by this disease. One of the people who is closer to Craftlet than others is um, Amy, longtime listener, friend Amy, who is in New Zealand. A friend of hers in Lexington, Kentucky, has been for a while in a medical coma. It's it's as bad as it could probably be for someone as young as she is. There's a GoFundMe site because when she does come out of the coma, it will have been, geez, Amy, I hope I get this right. It will have been over a month and she's stuck. There's been no one to pay her bills or her mortgage or anything. And her insurance is going to have her removed from the hospital as soon as she is off the ventilator and breathing on her own. 
welcome to the United States. She's not the only story I have heard, but she is young. And it's, it's just a brutally unfair disease in its randomness. So it comes down to, I am keeping busy, which is good for my restless mind, but lousy that what's keeping me busy is also killing people. In happier news, <laughs> we have our people who've signed up for the bookmark exchange uh, that has closed now so that uh, Tracy will be able to match up names and get all of that information out. I think by the time you hear this, you should have or you will soon have gotten an email from her with your bookmark exchangee with whom to exchange. And that's good. That's great. That's exciting and hopeful and something positive. And it makes me very, very happy. Thank you, Jennifer and Tracy, for cooking this up. I had notes at some point with all of, all of the things that I had forgotten to mention over the last two episodes. And of course, they're buried somewhere. I have no idea. Today is going to be devoted to trying to put this world back together again. Because um, as you know, when things start flying fast and furious, it is very easy to just set things to the side instead of putting them back where they belong. And that has been going on for several weeks now. So the tidy happens the after the recording. So I apologize. I apologize if I had something that I was supposed to mention that you told me about. I cannot figure out where the notes went. They were bright yellow. <laughs> they were on bright yellow paper. You would think I could find that. And the answer would be, there are lots of bright yellow things around me right now. And I can't discern those notes in the maelstrom. So if I find it for next week and any of them still apply, I will announce them then. Thank you for your forbearance. Ireland. Ireland. In October 2021, when all of this will be blessedly behind us. Please God, and the creeks don't rise. We, on day five, after seeing Bronte Country and Irish Linen, we will be in Belfast. If you are of an age like I am, born mid to late 60s, then you grew up and started paying attention to the world roughly around the time that the Troubles in Ireland were a thing. I paid as much attention to all of that as anyone who lived, what, five, six thousand miles away would have paid attention. And in that, I mean, I paid attention the way teenagers pay attention. And most of that was through music. So there was U2. There were actually several quite good bands. And most of the Irish bands that I remember listening to had some political song or plural songs. You two, who I really only started to notice, I think it was their second album, War, which is the one that released Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is interesting in retrospect because I kind of knew what it was about. And I, you know, you listen to the lyrics and if you have the album, <laughs> see, album or cassette, <laughs> cassette, you have liner notes and in the liner notes you can read the lyrics. And that's all true. But you weren't necessarily going to find information about Bloody Sunday in 
the Encyclopedia Britannica that was printed in 1970. So without the internet, it was hard to find information about some of the lyrics and some of these songs unless you got Rolling Stone and they happened to cover you too. And there happened to be an article about where the impulse behind some of their songs arose, which I was lucky enough to both have a subscription to and read that article. And I remember it because I was so shocked. I've realized over time that I'm really remarkably surprised still at this late date by bad behavior. <laughs> which means I walk around most of the time really surprised by life. But it's it's not just bad behavior, it's the it's the failure to communicate that I find so upsetting all the time. The both the failure to listen and the failure to find a way to hear how you are going to be heard, maybe? I've watched a lot of people in the last couple of weeks speak to groups of people without any idea of how they may be coming across or have may, may have misread the room. Actually, it's not just the last few weeks, it's the last few years. And I don't know, I may be exactly as dense <laughs> as everybody I've been listening to. And I just have no idea how I'm perceived at moments similar <laughs> to that. But as a kid, I kept looking at conflicts around the world like this, whether it was apartheid or the troubles in, in Ireland. And I couldn't fathom why this had become the answer, why violence had become an answer. And now that we're starting to see these things on the rise again, it's rather unnerving. This song is not a rebel song. This song is someday, bloody someday. And I think I'm more unnerved these days by these kinds of upswings in violence because unlike when I was a teenager and finding out the stories of the 
Bloody Sunday Massacre in 1972, how that would have been difficult if the Encyclopedia Britannica you had was written in, published in uh, 1970. Now we have the internet. It was very easy for me to go down a rabbit hole of memory. <laughs> it was very easy this morning. And look up some of the history that I had missed and find out about the Falls Road and how on the tour of Ireland, we're going to get to see a ton of really amazing political and sectarian and non-sectarian and non-political murals on walls, on buildings, many of which are on the Falls Road. And the Falls Road was a road that was identified as being part of the Republican, part of the pro-Irish, Catholic, not pro-British, Protestant side of the conflict. It gets way more complicated. Once you start down that road, the whole conflict gets very, very complicated, and there's a lot of history to it. Thus, it makes a great rabbit hole. I am not going to go into that right now, and I know that that simplifies everything far too much. And if anyone knows of any historical writing on that area and that time period that you think is particularly good, please send me the name of the book or the author or the website that you think would be useful because I'm fascinated. But the, the thing that really started me thinking about this was that when I think of the, the troubles, aside from the fact that I now also think of the, I think it's a Netflix series called Dairy Girls, D-E-R-R-Y, because of the city of Derry in Northern Ireland, which we will see. Dairy Girls is hilarious and yet manages to not ignore the troubles that are going on around them. It's just that they're 15 years old and growing up. And so, you know, you live your life. Along with Dairy Girls, anytime I think of any of this place, this particular time, Belfast, the troubles, the song that got welded into my memory in 1990 was this one. And while you're listening to the lyrics, maybe for the first time, I don't know if you've ever heard the song before or not, listen to the lyrics and know that I'm linking out to a video that does not contain historical video or imagery, but modern, within the last three years, video and imagery, demonstrating very soberly that not much has changed except the locations. Here you go. Anyway, so there was a, near me, there were two young boys, maybe 14 and 13, um, who had borrowed their cousin's moped. And the police had assumed that they stole the moped and they uh, chased the two boys who kind of panicked and uh, smashed into uh, the side of a petrol station and ended up dead. So it's not a happy song. So It wouldn't make you want to live in England, basically. Margaret Thatcher on TV Shocked by the deaths that took place in Beijing It seems strange that she should be offended The same orders are given by her I said this before now 
You said I was childish And you'll say it now Remember what I told you If they hated me They will hate you England's not the mythical George and Roses It's the home of Police who kill Black boys on Mopeds I love my boy And that's why I'm leaving I don't want him to be Aware that there's Any such thing as Grieving Young mother Down at Smithfield Which is not supposed to be Debbie Downer moment right now, but it is, I think, one of those things that to me makes travel and history and learning the history of the places to which one travels so, so important. Understanding how people born in the same place at the same time can have such completely different visions of the world that they're living in, depending on such sometimes completely random factors. It just seems very important to me these days. And nowhere in the Northern Hemisphere that I can think of off the top of my head, which means basically nowhere that I know anything about right now, (laughs) which is limited, puts that out there in such stark relief as Belfast, Northern Ireland. One of the other things that we will get to see along with the tour of Belfast itself and 
the incredible murals. And I am linking out to a site that discusses, I think, 35 of the, the best of them. Is we will also see, wow, this really is a Debbie Downer moment. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even think about, <laughs> I didn't even think about this. The RMS Titanic Museum. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to be a great day, though, because I think some of the things that are extraordinary about the Titanic, aside from the obvious tragedy of the event that took so many lives and the, the tragic hubris of the planning and, and the naming of the ship, I think the thing that's really extraordinary is the guys who built it were guys in Belfast. It was built in Belfast Harbor. It's a Belfast creation. And if somebody hadn't just driven it into an iceberg, <laughs> she says completely callously, no, I mean, it's not Belfast's fault that there was an iceberg in the ocean and that iceberg-like is much smaller on top than it is down below. It really is a testament to how extraordinary the skills were that were held by the the people who built this extraordinary ship. And there's the Titanic Museum in Belfast. So we get to see how how do you build a ship like that? I mean, really. And it's not just the steelwork on the ship. It's not just the metallurgy that's required to make something that big that can float. It's also the glasswork and the woodwork and the wrought iron work. I mean, there are so many parts of that ship that were so beautiful. The crystal for the people in first class, it's just everything. So, so many parts to the creation of that ship. And it's, it's a horrible tragedy. It's also a fascinating piece of history that was frozen in time. And I'm, I'm particularly excited about getting to go to Ireland and see this with my mom, who will be going on the trip with us, along with Thing 2, Aiden, who will be a senior in high school. I know some of you need to sit down every time I say something like that about the boys. But I'm, I'm particularly fascinated to go to this particular museum with my mom, who's listening right now, because, and mom, you can call in and correct me if I, if I get this wrong, the call-in number, <laughs> area code 206-350-1642. That's 206-350-1642. Anyone can call and leave a voicemail message that I will collect and play on the next episode. But the reason, I will now finish the sentence, the reason that I'm excited to see this particular museum with my mom is that she actually traveled from the United States to Europe by boat in the 50s when she was but a wee lass. And mom, this is the part you can correct me on if I'm wrong. I remember you telling me, I think I remember you telling me, somebody told me, it could have been a dream, that as a child traveling to Holland from New York, your ship, which was the QE2, maybe, hit the tail end of a hurricane? Is this right? And you were one of the few people <laughs> you could remember who wasn't seasick and confined to cabins because of that. And that you went to the back, was it the back doors of the boat so that you could look out over the, what is it, the stern, the back end of the boat. And I think you said that the doors were tied 
the doorknobs or the push bars were tied together or chained together. I don't actually remember that. I may be making that up. But I seem to recall you saying that you would watch and see nothing but sky and then the boat would come down and the water would go up and then all you could see was a wall of water and then that would come down and the tail end of the boat would go up and then all you could see was sky again and that 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 was what it looked like to hit the tail end of a hurricane. I have no idea if I'm remembering that correctly, but it's a heck of a good image. So, so even if I am wrong, I think I'm going to keep telling the story that way because it's good. <laughs> but either way, my mom got to travel across the same part of the ocean that the Titanic would have if it had made it all the way. Luckily, my mom's ship did. Ships. Ships. Plural. Because you went and came back, right? Obviously, you went and came back, but did it both ways by boat, at least that one time, I think. Anywho, I am excited. I'm really actually quite excited to get a chance to see Belfast and the murals and the Titanic Museum and get to go see it with Craftlet people. We are now almost, almost completely sold out. In fact, I should have probably checked with you, Diane, before I started speaking today. We're super, super close. So if you are interested in snagging one of the last two or three seats on the trip, please call 1-888-554-5208. Call, let them know that it's the Craftlet Ireland tour that you're interested in. They will sign you up. You will put down $200 it's fully refundable through, I think, the end of June 2021. But that locks in your price. That locks in your seat. And that means no one can take your place. On, I mean, could anyone really take your place? Honestly, no. You are you. You are unique. You are individual. As are we all. Ah. <laughs> uh, I love that. So yes, by God, call 1-888-554-5208. Reserve a space on this trip. This is a wonderful thing about Craftlet people and Diane's tours in general, is you have moments of awesome hilarity at a distillery or a pub or a gingerbread making operation or at an artist's house or in a garden. And then the next thing you go see makes you go, oh, yeah, life, history, mortality, stuff gets real. And then we all get together, take out our knitting, our sketchbooks, our crochet, get a drink, get some snacks, sit down, and take comfort in the fact that we're all there together enjoying each other's companies and stories and histories. We learn, we see, we grow, we have a great time. It's good. Nothing, nothing could be better than getting a chance to travel with the people Craftlet has collected. And that's a long preamble to today's penultimate episode. Yes, that's right. We are not at the end of the book. We are, however, only going to do one chapter today because next week we're finishing the book off. Today's chapter, there is not much to say. Gilbert has to catch us up. There are other characters 
who are associated with Huntington, who we need to catch up on. We need to have their stories wrapped up for us. This is the chapter that does that. So today is really the beginning of the denouement, and we've talked about this before. The way denouement has been translated into English appears to have been done poorly, to my mind, that the word that English teachers always use is denouement means unraveling or untying. And that's literally true, but not useful. Because why would you want to unravel things at the end of a book? Why would you want to untie things? It's not so much that. It's that all of the knots and the complications and the things that have been stressful and upsetting and distressing during the climax, those knots get untied and released. So the tension gets released. The other way of of thinking about it is that all of the loose ends actually get tied together in a neat little bow. So all of the pieces that didn't seem to make sense start to make sense. All of the challenges and and problems that were dealt with some at length during the course of the book, all of those loose ends find a home. They get tucked in nicely, sometimes hidden away, sometimes incorporated elegantly. And at the end, next week, you have a final and complete fabric that makes sense. And so today is the beginning of that process. It's not the shortest chapter, it's not the longest chapter, but it was too long to put together with next week's chapters without running into two hours worth of audio. So today we will hear Eden Ballantyne reading for us chapter 50, 50 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, read for us today again by Eden Ballantyne. Here we go. Chapter 50. Doubts and Disappointments. On reading this, I had no reason to disguise my joy and hope from Frederick Lawrence, for I had none to be ashamed of. I felt no joy but that his sister was at length released from her afflictive, overwhelming toil. No hope, but she would in time recover from the effects of it, and be suffered to rest in peace and quietness, at least for the remainder of her life. I experienced a painful commiseration for her unhappy husband, though fully aware he had brought every particle of his suffering upon himself, and too well deserved them all, and a profound sympathy for her own afflictions, and a deep anxiety for the consequences of those harassing cares, those dreadful vigils, that incessant and deleterious confinement beside a living corpse, for I was persuaded she had not hinted half the suffering she had had to endure. "'Will you go to a Lawrence?' said I, as I put the letter into his hand. "'Yes, immediately. That's right. I'll leave you, then, to prepare for your departure. "'I've already done that, while you're reading the letter, and before you came, "'and the carriage is now coming round to the door.' "'Inly approving of his promptitude, I bade him good morning and withdrew. "'He gave me a searching glance as we pressed each other's hands at parting, "'but whatever he sought in my countenance.' He saw there nothing but the most becoming gravity. It might be mingled with a little sternness in momentary resentment at what I had suspected passing in his mind. Had I forgotten my own prospects, my ardent love, my pernicious hopes? It seemed like sacrilege to revert to them now, but I had not forgotten them. It was, however, with a gloomy sense of darkness of those prospects, the fallacy of those hopes, 
and the vanity of that affection that I reflected on those things as I remounted my horse and slowly journeyed homewards. Mrs. Huntingdon was free now. It was no longer a crime to think of her. But did she ever think of me? Not now, of course. It was not to be expected. But would she when this shock was over? In all the course of her correspondence with her brother, our mutual friend, as she herself had called him, she had never mentioned me but once. And that was from necessity. This alone afforded a strong presumption that I was already forgotten. Yet this was not the worst. It might have been her sense of duty that had kept her silent. She might be only trying to forget. But in addition to this, I had a gloomy conviction that the awful reality she had seen and felt, her reconciliation with the man she had once loved, his dreadful sufferings and death, must eventually efface from her mind all traces of her passing love for me. She might recover from these horrors, so far as to be restored to her former health, her tranquillity, her cheerfulness even, but never to those feelings which would appear to her, henceforth as a fleeting fancy, a vain elusive dream, especially as there's no one to remind her of my existence, no means of assuring her of my fervent consistency now that we're so far apart, and delicacy forbade me to see her or to write her for months to come at least. And how could I engage her brother in my behalf? How could I break that icy crust of shy reserve? Perhaps he would disapprove of my attachment now, as highly as before. Perhaps he would think me too poor, too lowly born to match his sister. Yes, there was another barrier. Doubtless there was a wide distinction between the rank and circumstances of Mrs Huntingdon, the lady of Grassdale Manor, and those of Mrs Graham, the artist, the tenant of Wildfell Hall. And it might be deemed presumption in me to offer my hand to the former by the world, by her friends, if not by herself. A penalty I might brave if I were certain she loved me, but otherwise, how could I? And finally, her deceased husband, with his usual selfishness, might have constructed his will as to place restrictions upon her marrying again. So you see, I had reason enough for despair if I chose to indulge it. Nevertheless, it was with no small degree of impatience that I looked forward to Mr Lawrence's return from Grassdale, impatience that increased in proportion as his absence was prolonged. He stayed away for some ten or twelve days, all very right that he should remain to comfort and help his sister, but he might have written to tell me how she was, or at least to tell me when to expect his return, for he might have known I was suffering tortures of anxiety for her and uncertainty of my own future prospects. And when he did return, all he told me about her was that she'd been greatly exhausted and worn by her unremitting exertions on behalf of that man who had been the scourge of her life, and had dragged her with him nearly to the portals of the grave, and was still much shaken and depressed by his melancholy end, and the circumstances attended upon it. But no word in reference to me. No intimation that my name had ever passed her lips, or had been spoken in her presence. To be sure, I asked no questions on the subject. I could not bring my mind to do so, believing as I did that Lawrence was indeed averse to the idea of my union with his sister. I saw that he expected to be further questioned concerning his visit, and I saw too, with a keen perception of awakening jealousy, or alarmed self-esteem, or by whatever name I ought to call it, 
that he rather shrank from that impending scrutiny, and was no less pleased than surprised to find it did not come. Of course I was burning with anger, but pride obliged me to suppress my feelings and preserve a smooth face, or at least a stoic calmness, throughout the interview. It was well I did. For reviewing the matter in my sober judgment, I must say it would have been highly absurd and improper to have quarrelled with him on such an occasion. I must confess, too, that I wronged him in my heart. The truth was, he liked me very well. But he was fully aware that a union between Mrs Huntingdon and me would be what the world called a mesalliance. And it was not in his nature to set the world in defiance, especially in a case such as this, for its dread laugh, or ill opinion, would be far more terrible to him directed against his sister than himself. Had he believed a union was necessary to the happiness of both, or of either, or had he known how fervently I loved her, he would have acted differently. But seeing me so calm and cool, he would not for the world disturb my philosophy, and though refraining entirely from any active opposition to the match, he would yet do nothing to bring it about. I would much rather take the part of prudence, in aiding us to overcome our mutual predilections than that of feelings to encourage them. And he was in the right of it, you will say. Perhaps he was. At any rate, I had no business to feel so bitterly against him as I did, but then I could not then regard the matter in such a moderate light, and after a brief conversation upon indifferent topics, I went away, suffering all the pangs of a wounded pride and injured friendship, in addition to those resulting from the fear that I was indeed forgotten, and the knowledge that she I loved was alone, and afflicted, suffering from injured health and dejected spirits, and I was forbidden to console or assist her, forbidden even to assure her of my sympathies, for the transmission of any such message through Mr Lawrence was now completely out of the question. But what should I do? I would wait and see if she would notice me, which of course she would not, unless by some kind message entrusted to a brother that, in all probability, he would not deliver. And then, dreadful thought, she would think me cooled and changed for not returning it, or perhaps he had already given her to understand that I had ceased to think of her. I would wait, however, till the six months after our parting were fairly passed, which would be about the close of February, and then I would send her a letter, modestly reminding her of her former permission to write to her at the close of that period, and hoping I might avail myself of it, at least to express my heartfelt sorrow for her late afflictions, my just apprehensions of her generous conduct, and my hope that her health was now completely re-established and that she would, some time, be permitted to enjoy those blessings of a peaceful, happy life, which had been denied her so long, but which no one could more truly be said to merit than herself, adding a few words of kind remembrance to my little friend Arthur, with a hope that he had not forgotten me, and perhaps a few more in reference to bygone times, to the delightful hours I had passed in her society, and my unfading recollection of them, which was the salt and solace of my life, and I hope that in her recent troubles she had not entirely banished me from her mind, and if she did not answer this, of course, I should write no more. If she did, as surely she would in some fashion, my future proceedings will be regulated by her reply. Ten weeks was long to wait in such a miserable state of uncertainty, but courage, it must be endured. In the meantime, 
I would continue to see Lawrence now and then, though not as often as before, and I would still pursue my habitual inquiries after his sister, if he had lately heard from her, and how she was, but nothing more. I did so, and the answers I received were always provokingly limited to the letter of the inquiry. She was much as usual. She made no complaints. But the tone of her last letter evinced the great depression of mind. She said she was better, and finally, she said she was well, and very busy with her son's education, with the management of her late husband's property, and the regulation of his affairs. The rascal had never told me how that property was disposed, and whether Mr Huntington had died into state or not, and I would sooner die than ask him, lest he should misconstrue into covetousness my desire to know. He never offered to show me his sister's letters now, and I never hinted a wish to see them. February, however, was approaching. December was past. January at length was almost over. A few weeks more, and then certain despair or renewal of hope would put an end to this long agony of suspense. But alas, it was just about that time she was called to sustain another blow in the death of her uncle. A worthless old fellow enough in himself, I dare say, but he had always shown more kindness and affection to her than to any other creature, and she had always been accustomed to regarding him as a parent. She was with him when he died, and had assisted her aunt to nurse him during the last stage of his illness. Her brother went to Stanningley to attend the funeral, and told me upon his return that she was still there, endeavouring to cheer her aunt with her presence, and likely to remain some time. This was bad news for me, for while she continued there I could not write to her, as I did not know the address, and would not ask it of him. But week followed week, and every time I inquired about her she was still at Stanningley. "'Where is Stanningley?' I asked at last. "'In Derbyshire,' was the brief reply, and there was something so cold and dry in the manner of it that I was effectually deterred from requesting a more definite account. "'When will she return to Grassdale?' was my next question. "'I don't know.' "'Confound it,' I muttered. "'Why, Markham?' asked my companion, with an air of innocent surprise. But I did not deign to answer him, save my look of silent, sullen contempt, at which he turned away, and contemplated the carpet with a slight smile, half pensive, half amused. But quickly looking up, he began to talk of other subjects, trying to draw me into a cheerful and friendly conversation, but I was too much irritated to discourse with him, and soon took leave. You see, Lawrence and I somehow could not manage to get on very well together. The fact is, I believe we were both of us a little too touchy. It is a troublesome thing, Halford, this susceptibility to affronts where none were intended. I am no martyr to it now, as you can bear me witness. I have learnt to be merry and wise, to be more easy with myself, and more indulgent to my neighbours, and I can afford to laugh at both Lawrence and you. Partly from accident partly from willful neglect on my part, for I was really beginning to dislike him. Several weeks elapsed before I saw my friend again. When we did meet, it was he that sought me out. One bright morning early in June, he came into the field where I was just commencing my hay harvest. It is long since I saw you, Markham, said he, after the first few words had passed between us. Do you never mean to come to Woodford again? 
I called once, and you were out. I was sorry, but that was long since. I hoped you would call again, and now I have called, and you are out, which you generally are, or I would do myself the pleasure of calling more frequently. But being determined to see you this time, I have left my pony in the lane, and come over the hedge and ditch to join you, for I am about to leave Woodford for a while, and I may not have the pleasure of seeing you again for a month or two. Where are you going? To Grasdale first, said he, with a half-smile he would willingly have suppressed if he could. To Grasdale. Is she there, then? Yes, but in a day or two she will leave it to accompany Mrs. Maxwell to Filey, for the benefits of the sea air, and I shall go with them. Filey was at that time a quiet but respectable watering place. It is considerably more frequented now. Lawrence seemed to expect me to take advantage of this circumstance, to entrust him with some sort of message to his sister, and I believe he would have undertaken to deliver it without any material objections, if I had the sense to ask him, though of course he would not offer to do so, if I was content to let it alone. But I could not bring myself to make the request, and it was not till he was gone that I saw how fair an opportunity I had lost, and then, indeed, I deeply regretted my stupidity and my foolish pride, but it was now too late to remedy the evil. He did not return towards the latter end of August. He wrote to me twice, or thrice, from Filey, but his letters were most provokingly unsatisfactory, dealing in generalities or in trifles that I cared nothing about, or replete with fancies and reflections equally unwelcome to me at the time, saying next to nothing about his sister, and little more about himself. I would wait, however, till he came back. Perhaps I could get something more out of him then. At all events, I would not write to her now, while she was with him, and her aunt who doubtless would still be more hostile to my presumptuous aspirations than himself. When she was returned to the silence and solitude of her own home, it will be my fittest opportunity. When Lawrence came, however, he was as reserved as ever on the subject of my keen anxiety. He told me that his sister had derided considerable benefits from a stay at Filey, that her son was quite well, and, alas, that both of them were gone, with Mrs Maxwell, back to Stanningley and there they stayed at least three months. But instead of boring you with my chagrins, my expectations and disappointments, my fluctuations of dull despondency and flickering hope, my varying resolutions now to drop it, and now to persevere, now to make a bold push, and now to let things pass, and patiently abide my time, I will employ myself in setting the business of one or two of the characters introduced in the course of this narrative, whom I may not have occasion to mention again. Sometime before Mr Huntington's death, Lady Lowbury eloped with another gallant to the continent, where, having lived a while in reckless gaiety and dissipation, they quarrelled and parted. She went dashing on for a season, but years came and money went. She sunk at length, in difficulty and debt, disgrace and misery, and died at last, as I have heard, in penury, neglect, and utter wretchedness. But this might be only a report. She may be living yet for anything I or any of her relatives or former acquaintances can tell. For they have all lost sight of her long ago, and would as thoroughly forget her if they could. Her husband, however, upon this second misdemeanour, immediately sought and obtained a divorce, and not long after, married again. It was well he did, for Lord Lowborough, morose and moody as it seemed, was not a man for a bachelor's life.
no public interests, no ambitious projects or active pursuits or ties of friendship even, if he had any friends, could compensate him for the absence of domestic comforts and endearments. He had a son and a nominal daughter, it is true, but they too painfully reminded him of their mother, and the unfortunate little Annabella was a source of perpetual bitterness to his soul. He had obliged himself to treat her with paternal kindness. He had forced himself not to hate her, and even perhaps to feel some degree of kindly regard for her, at last in return, for her artless and unsuspecting attachment to himself. But the bitterness of his self-condemnation for his inward feelings towards that innocent being, his constant struggles to subdue the evil promptings of his nature, for it was not a generous one, though partly guessed at by those who knew him, could be known to God and his own heart alone. So also was the hardness of his conflicts with the temptation to return to the vice of his youth and seek oblivion for past calamities and deadness to the present misery of a blighted heart, a joyless, friendless life, and a morbid, disconsolated mind, by yielding again to that insidious foe to health and sense and virtue which has so deplorably enslaved and degraded him before. The second object of his choice was wildly different from the first. Some wondered at his taste, some even ridiculed it. But in this their folly was more apparent than his. The lady was about his own age, i.e. between thirty and forty, remarkable neither for beauty, nor wealth, nor brilliant accomplishments, nor any other thing that I have ever heard of, except genuine good sense, unswerving integrity, active piety, warm-hearted benevolence, and a fund of cheerful spirits. These qualities, however, as you may readily imagine, combined to render her an excellent mother to the children, and an invaluable wife to his lordship. He, with his usual self-deprecation, thought her a world too good for him, and while he wondered at the kindness of Providence in conferring such a gift upon him, and even at her taste in preferring him to other men, he did his best to reciprocate the good she did him, and so far succeeded that she was, and I believe still is, one of the happiest and fondest wives in England, and all who question the good taste of either party may be thankful in their respective selections afford them half the genuine satisfaction in the end, or repay their preferences, with affection half as lasting and sincere. If you are at all interested in the fate of that low scoundrel Grimsby, I can only tell you that he went from bad to worse, sinking from bathos to bathos, of vice and villainy, consorting with only the worst members of his club, and the lowest dregs of society. Happily for the rest of the world, and at last met his end in a drunken brawl, from the hands, it is said, of some other brother scoundrel he had cheated at play. As for Mr Hattersley, he had never wholly forgotten his resolution to come out from among them and behave like a man and a Christian, and the last illness and death of his jolly friend Huntingdon so deeply and seriously impressed him with the evil of their former practices that he never needed another lesson of the kind. Avoiding the temptation of the town, he continued to pass his life in the country, immersed in the usual pursuits of a hearty, active country gentleman, his occupations being those of farming and breeding horses and cattle, diversified with a little hunting and shooting, and enlivened by the occasional companionship of his friends, a better friends than those of his youth, and the society of his happy little wife, now cheerful and confident as heart could wish, and his fine family of stalwart sons and blooming daughters, his father, the banker, having died some years ago, 
and left him all his riches. He now had full scope for the excise. His father, the banker, having died some years ago and left him all his riches. He has now the full scope for the exercise of his prevailing tastes. And I need not tell you that Ralph Hattersley Esquire is celebrated throughout the country for his noble breed of horses. So Hattersley turned out to stick with it. He stayed on the side of good. He made a promise to Helen and he kept it. And Helen's friend is all the happier for that as well. Grimsby met exactly the end one might expect of Grimsby. And Lady Loughborough. <sighs> we could see the writing on the wall, though, right? And not only that, but when you think about all of those stories, the, the kind of precursors to the Penny Dreadfuls that Anne and Emily and Charlotte and Branwell all read as children, there was no hope, right? that Lady Loughborough would come to anything but a bad end. She was she was destined for it from the get-go, which, is it unfair? Sure. Is it to be expected? Absolutely. <laughs> you know. <sighs> but on the upside, poor Lord Loughborough, who was so badly done by, gets a happy ending as well. So right now we're at a point where pretty much everybody except Gilbert and Helen have their happy endings all sewn up for them. Gilbert is still Gilbert. He goes back and forth between being really rather self-observant and aware, and then having moments where you just want to smack him upside the head. But that's also human too. So maybe he's just human and not perfect. Helen certainly isn't perfect either. So maybe, maybe they'll find a way. We shall see next week. I will let you know what book I'm going to pick up after that. I'll start that in January. And in the meantime, please, 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 please take care of yourself. Be safe. Be well. Wear a mask. Take care of those you love. And I will talk to you next week. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review over at iTunes. Join us on Facebook. Meet up with the knitters on Craftlet's Corner of Ravelry. Stay in the know on Instagram or add your name to our mailing list, which I promise will never spam you. In fact, you probably want to buy a lottery ticket on any day that you get a message from the Craftlet mailing list because that'll be a special day. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.